Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. Our show is about to begin. Over the course of one week in 1965, an orchestrator and composer named Alexander Courage wrote one of the most famous pieces of theme music in the history of television. This is The Soundtrack Show. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and this episode is the beginning of our look at a television series from the mid-1960s called Star Trek. Nowadays referred to as Star Trek The Original Series. closely examine its first season, which is made up of a whopping 29 episodes. Don't worry, we'll break down how we get to that number later, each with an approximate runtime of about an hour. It's a lot of music, but it's smaller than you think. It also featured five composers. But in this episode, we're going to focus on the work of just one of those composers, the original, and tell his story. The story of Alexander, or Sandy, Courage. For those of you who love Star Trek, I hope you find that these episodes deepen your love and admiration for the Enterprise's five-year, three-season musical mission. And for those of you who are not familiar with Star Trek, my hope is that you'll be as fascinated as I am with the realities of producing orchestral music for TV in the 1960s, as it is a far different reality than anything we've discussed on the soundtrack show thus far. The creativity, certainly, but the pressure the economics, the technology, and the culture, they all play a part in the stories and the music that we'll discuss. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Behind timeless and famous music, there are people. And we will start it all with Star Trek's first composer, Sandy Courage. In many ways, merely calling Alexander Sandy Courage the composer of Star Trek is to criminally reduce his musical accomplishments. If you're not all that familiar with Courage as a composer, that is because he spent most of his professional career as an arranger and orchestrator, working on some of the most famous and influential films of the 20th century. Besides Star Trek, Courage was an arranger and or orchestrator on huge movies, such as Jurassic Park, Home Alone, Return of the Jedi Superman, L.A. Confidential, Mulan, Basic Instinct, and so many more. And that's just the tip of the iceberg when trying to sum up Courage's career. And we haven't even gotten anywhere near Star Trek yet. 
Sandy and I collaborated on so many projects over the years. He was a man that could adapt music and arrange it, which is to say, take a simple tune and set it up for the orchestra. Or he could act as an orchestrator, where he would be given directions from the composer to do very detailed work. Superman is an example where we work together on it and I might give him a tune like this and it would come out on the screen on the orchestra. We, we, we might discuss what instrument would play it. I remember one scene where it was an oboe solo accompanied probably by strings down here and Sandy would take these directions and go produce the sound that we would hear on the soundtrack by his magic and alchemy and his genius. But hold up before we go any further. What's an orchestrator again? What does that mean? And what's an arranger? And how does it relate to the music that we love and to those who composed it? Great questions. These roles are absolutely critical to the music we love. I'll start with some simple definitions. An arranger is someone that takes a piece of music that is as simple as a melody or even a fragment of a melody And they provide it with instrumentation, harmony, feel, rhythm or rhythmic alterations, and essentially give us a lush, full experience based on something as simple as a sketch or someone humming a tune to them. An orchestrator, then, is basically an arranger who does this for an orchestra and all of the various instruments that the orchestra features. If your head is spinning a little bit, have no fear. I'm going to give you a little bit of music history for clarification, and then we'll realize that it all comes down to how quickly these scores can be produced. You see, going back to the days of Mozart or Beethoven, we make no distinction between a composer and an orchestrator. They're the same. The need for orchestration or an orchestrator is one born out of the necessity for speed. Time constraints simply made it impossible for film composers to do everything themselves. Most film composers work with orchestrators to help them realize their musical vision under very tight deadlines, but they give extremely detailed notes to their orchestrator based off of reduced sketches or handwritten notes. Therefore, orchestrators work very closely with film composers to help realize their vision, and they often get to add flair and sonic touches of their own to give the music a level of heightened polish. How creative the orchestrator gets depends on the nature of the composer-orchestrator collaboration. It can vary wildly from team to team. Alexander Courage was a key collaborator for composers like John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith as an orchestrator. It's funny, Jerry Goldsmith would ironically end up with his orchestrator, Sandy Courage, working in his own Star Trek theme into Goldsmith's feature Star Trek scores. 
And while we will get to Star Trek in this episode, I want to talk a little bit more about orchestration, arranging, and Alexander Courage. Musicals are a wonderful example of orchestration and arranging, particularly those classic musicals from MGM. If you have a simple lead sheet of a song with a piano part and melody with a rough idea of harmony, it is the arranger or orchestrator's job to turn that small amount of musical information into an orchestration that can be played by a wide complement of orchestral musicians. This is exactly what the MGM music department did in the 1930s and 40s, and the sound that they arranged and orchestrated made a huge impression on the entire world. For our information, Sandy Courage, years before Star Trek, was a member of the MGM music department, along with Conrad Salinger and Andre Previn. In the 1940s and 50s, well, 30s even, the American musical film really captured the imagination of the whole world. The mecca, really, for the American musical film was MGM Studios in Culver City, here in California. And there was a music department at MGM Studios made up of minor and major geniuses that produced this Hollywood musical sound. It was different than London theater and Broadway theater. It had a sound of its own. And the sound really, I suppose you could say, originated from the orchestra, the orchestrations. MGM Studios had its own contract orchestra. And it was a combination of a theater orchestra, circa the 1920s and so on, and the symphony orchestra, circa Mahler years. And this kind of instrumental talent was brought together to play the orchestrations of this small group of geniuses. We know some of the names. Andre Previn was one of them. Conrad Salinger was another. And one of the principal architects, Alexander Sandy Courage. Some of his musical highlights from that era as an orchestrator-arranger include Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, Life Upon the Wicked Stage from Showboat, Guys and Dolls, and Funny Face, a film from 1957 starring Audrey Hepburn and Fred Astaire, though by that time Courage was orchestrating all over town, including movies for Fox and Paramount. Oftentimes, Courage is credited or uncredited as an orchestrator, but also a, quote, composer of additional music, end quote, showing just how close orchestration and composition are linked. While Courage was working on musicals for MGM, he also did an impressive amount of composition for television, a medium that was growing and becoming significantly more important in the late 1940s and certainly in the 50s. He composed music for a lot of different TV programs, including Lost in Space, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Daniel Boone, which he did at Fox. In fact, he snuck in the pilot for Star Trek in between episodes of Daniel Boone, The Brothers Brannigan, and Judd for the Defense, which he also wrote the theme song for. By the early 1960s, Sandy Courage was at the top of his game as an orchestrator and was already very busy as a working composer for TV. And it was around this time that he got a call from an old buddy to score a pilot for a new show set in the distant future about a starship and its crew that dares to go where no man has gone before. And now for a brief intermission. We return now to the soundtrack show.
Captain's Log, Earth date 1951, Hollywood, California. The Enterprise has traveled back in time to monitor the development of a phenomenon called television and assess exactly how our existence as Star Trek came into being. Okay, that's my last bad Shatner impression, I promise. But like the Enterprise, we're going to go back in time 15 years before the premiere of Star Trek on NBC. After 10 years of experiments, the public at last gets a preview of television. With the inauguration of two weekly broadcasts, set owners in metropolitan New York and visitors to the World's Fair see a suggestion of what may be expected of this new medium. Sets are offered for sale at prices ranging from about $200 to $600. Now the principal advantage television has over radio is that the performer can be seen as well as heard. Television itself was in its infancy, but it was an incredible disruption to the studio system and effectively ended the golden age of Hollywood and its movies. Film studios were going out of business and being sold to other corporations. Universal was sold to MCA. Paramount was sold to Gulf Western. RKO was sold to a company that made tires. As the number of TVs in American households increased exponentially in the late 40s and early 50s. New kinds of entertainment were now flying over the airwaves directly into our living rooms. We had variety shows, concerts on TV, cooking shows, talk shows, even farming shows and puppet shows. And the news was a whopping 15 minutes. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight's special features, the coming buyer's market in automobiles. Then a new department, the sports section. And finally, if we don't run fresh out of time, which quite likely we may, we'll have a piece on trade across the Iron Curtain in Europe. Now, your tomorrow morning's headlines tonight. Eventually, TV started producing more and more series. Dramatic shows as seen on craft television theater. Westerns like The Lone Ranger and Hopalong Cassidy. But in 1951, a massively successful comedy about a housewife married to a nightclub musician in New York City made its television debut and ran all the way until 1958. Based on a previously developed radio show, the Columbia Broadcasting System, also known as CBS, started airing a TV series called I Love Lucy to nationwide acclaim. The show starred Lucille Ball and real-life husband Desi Arnaz and was one of television's earliest runaway hit shows. Wait, what does this have to do with Star Trek or its music? Well, if it wasn't for Lucille Ball and I Love Lucy, Star Trek simply never would have existed. And the man who hired Alexander Courage, as we'll find out, would never have been involved because he worked for Lucy and Desi. So how do we get from I Love Lucy to Star Trek? In my episodes about the original Star Wars, I recounted the story of George Lucas being granted the sequel and merchandising rights from Fox and what has gone down as one of the most shrewd deals in Hollywood movie history. Well, one of the most shrewd deals in Hollywood TV history has to do with Lucy and Desi as they smartly negotiated the rights of their films of I Love Lucy away from CBS. Forgive the side story here, but this is how it all went down, and it's fascinating. Most shows like I Love Lucy were broadcast live and then captured on Kinescope. In fact, they were usually broadcast live out of New York, and then they were Kinescope to air later on the West Coast. Kinescope, by the way, was a device used to film a TV monitor with a film camera. 
I Love Lucy, however, was incredibly forward-thinking, for a very practical reason. Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz didn't want to shoot the show on the East Coast and broadcast live. They wanted to stay in L.A. because they had just had a child. So they agreed to a $1,000 a week pay cut in order to add the expense of filming the show on 35mm cameras. Three of them, in fact. And they decided to do it with a live studio audience. No canned laughter for this show. This was an unusual expense at the time, but boy, did it pay off. Having three cameras meant that they could perform it live, but they're filming it and they have the finished film in their possession. This means that Lucy and Desi, having formed the production company called Desi Lou, named after the two of them, of course, had the show perfectly captured and ready for mass distribution. What they had done before the word rerun even existed was that they had kept the rights of I Love Lucy reruns to themselves by owning the films, the filmed TV show. So, in the summer of 1952, when CBS no longer had any shows of I Love Lucy to air, they predictably came calling to Desilu for the rights. They wanted to keep the money party going. They wanted to keep selling ads against the show. So Desilu negotiated the first ever rerun rights to CBS in the summer of 52 for a million dollars. I Love Lucy reruns ran on CBS that summer as Desilu prepared for their next season, Swimming in Cash. Long story short, Desilu became a TV powerhouse, and Lucille Ball was practically the queen of TV by the 1950s. And remember how I said that movie studios were getting bought up by other companies? In 1957, Desilu used its earnings to outright buy the property of RKO Pictures, one of the big five major motion picture studios in Hollywood at that time. It's the studio that brought us Citizen Kane and King Kong, among others. By the late 1950s, Desilu owned two movie lots, housing a whopping 33 sound stages, and an outdoor filming area in Culver City, known as the RKO 40 Acres, where everything from Gone with the Wind to Tarzan was filmed. The result? Everyone in town started filming at Desilu. The Andy Griffith Show, The Dick Van Dyke Show, My Three Sons, The Real McCoys, and way more. Desilu became one of the largest independent studios in the history of Hollywood. Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz divorced in 1960, and Lucy became the sole owner of Desilu after Desi sold his portion. But in spite of Desilu earning money as a home for everyone else to shoot their shows, Lucille Ball wisely decided that the real money was in owning new intellectual property and started shopping for scripts. Out of this, some massive franchises were born. One was The Untouchables, a TV series starring Robert Stack. The Untouchables. A Desilu production. Another example was Mission Impossible, also a Desilu show. And the third, most important to our discussion, is, you guessed it, Star Trek. Now, much has been said about Star Trek and its development, about Gene Roddenberry, a former police speechwriter and pilot who first conceived of Star Trek after writing on several shows and producing a season of TV called The Lieutenant. And that's a long, detailed story that is probably better served by another podcast. But ultimately, the story goes like this. After being turned down by everyone else, Gene Roddenberry's pitch for Star Trek was accepted by Lucille Ball in 1964. Lucy and Desilu then partnered with the National Broadcasting Company, 
or NBC, to co-fund a pilot, which NBC was really hot to do, according to the Star Trek documentary Center Seat, because they really wanted to be in business with the It Girl of CBS, their direct competitor. And for those of you who are listening that don't know what a pilot is, a TV pilot is like a test episode, a proof of concept, where one episode is produced and then shown to the network and production company. From there, based on the strength of that pilot, a decision is made on whether or not to order up and pay for a full season. For our knowledge, dozens and dozens of TV pilots are made each and every year, with only a small handful actually being produced as full seasons and making it to the airwaves. Pilot season is a busy time for Hollywood, and in 1964, Star Trek's pilot went into production. But there was one big musical problem. No composer in town was interested in scoring it. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. Personal relationships, friendships, lifting each other up, these are key to success in any career. And showbiz isn't any different. Consider the story of pianist, conductor, and composer from the 20th century working in Hollywood named Wilbur Hatch. Wilbur, or Bill, as his friends called him, had a very successful career working as a pianist for CBS Radio in the 1930s, and by the 1940s was director of music for CBS Radio in Los Angeles, conducting, composing, basically running all of the music on several hit radio shows. At one point, while working on a weekly drama called the Screen Guild Theater, Bill became ill. He was in poor health, but the show had to go on. Thankfully, another composer named Adolf Deutsch, a Warner Brothers composer who had quit making movies at Warner Brothers because he felt like he was living in the shadow of Max Steiner and Eric Wolfgang Korngold, was now also working in radio and had discovered a young and inexpensive talent that came straight out of the army after World War II. Because he needed someone that was young, hungry, quick, and cheap that could make these orchestrations and arrangements for radio music every week. And when Bill Hatch got sick, this young man helped him tremendously, taking over as conductor and composer, and therefore sparking up a lifelong friendship. That young man's name was Alexander Sandy Courage. Bill Hatch went on to a television career from radio with Desilu Productions. where he appeared as Desi Arnaz's composer and conductor in I Love Lucy, and eventually wrote all the music for their follow-up shows, The Lucy Show and Here's Lucy, all throughout the 1960s. He was the de facto music director of Desi Lu, running their music department, when they went into production on a pilot for a new science fiction series called Star Trek. And at one point, Bill Hatch got a nervous phone call from one of the show's producers, Herbert F. Solo, Solo, along with Star Trek's other producer, Robert Justman, just couldn't find a composer because nobody in town thought the pilot for Star Trek would ever make it to television. When we finished the first pilot, I'm looking for a composer. No composer wanted to score it. I called all the agents who handle composers. I said, we have this, it's a tour, a movie, etc. No, not really. The reason being, of course, is that no one had any faith that Star Trek would ever get on the air. And that that composer's work that we would then own the rights to was tied up on a piece of film, could never be used again. And composers rather 
they will gamble that they're going to do the pilot that has a chance of selling. No one thought Star Trek would sell. Sandy Courage did it. How did I get Sandy Courage? Sandy was the top arranger at Fox, who occasionally scored television shows. He scored uh, Daniel Boone, etc. But he did all the arrangements and orchestrations for John Williams. He uh, he did Fiddler. He did My Fair Lady. He did. Uh, I mean, Sandy was was top in his world. The only uh, guy we could find was Sandy. And how did we get Sandy? Lucy's band leader. Wilbur Hatch, her on the lot, heard I could not get a composer, came up and said, Herb, listen, there's a guy I know named Alexander Courage. You may want to call him. So, how did a full-time orchestrator-arranger get the gig writing Star Trek? He and Wilbur Hatch were buddies. So Bill just asked him. And even though Sandy Courage was one of the hottest orchestrators in town, first at MGM and then at Fox when Hatch called him, he was still composing and taking other gigs in TV all the time. As I mentioned, he was already writing Daniel Boone at Fox when Bill Hatch called him. This is not an unusual pattern for Bill and Sandy. Even when Sandy started orchestrating at MGM in the late 40s, he was still working with Bill on a radio show called Broadway Is My Beat, one of three weekly shows that Courage was still writing music for while he began his orchestration career, by the way. Imagine that, a weekly show that you have to write music for, times three. And that was his moonlighting gig. Also, this wasn't the first TV scoring gig that Bill Hatch had made to Sandy Courage on Desilu's behalf. In the early 1960s, Courage scored two episodes of Desilu's first hit TV series, which I mentioned earlier, The Untouchables, which later, of course, went on to be a hit film in the 1980s directed by Brian De Palma, with a film score by legendary movie composer Ennio Morricone, but I digress. The point? When Bill Hatch called Sandy Courage to work on new TV assignments, including this one, writing music for a new NBC Desilu pilot, Courage happily obliged for his buddy once again. So, what was the assignment? What was Star Trek? Ah, here we go. When creator Gene Roddenberry presented Star Trek to Desilu, it was pitched as Wagon Train to the Stars. Wagon Train, a popular Western TV series at the time, chronicled the trials of a wagon train pushing across the American Midwest from Missouri to California. Star Trek was pitched as a spin on this Western, with its spaceship, a World War II-type Navy vessel with hundreds of souls on board, on a five-year mission deep into outer space. The pilot featured a script with a ship captain, a reluctant ship captain, named Captain Christopher Pike, played by Jeffrey Hunter, who, along with his second-in-command, called Number One, played by actress Majel Barrett, and Mr. Spock, an excitable science officer with pointy ears. This early version of Spock is a bit different than the one we actually got later. Well, the whole cast was different, but more on that in a bit. It was to be an anthology series, where every episode was its own whole adventure. In this way, the series could tackle all sorts of different science fiction ideas, but also touch on social issues, which was a goal of Gene Roddenberry's from the outset. Roddenberry was an idealist and wanted to tackle real social issues of the day. War, racism, bigotry, inequality, and other societal ills. Especially after his previous show, The Lieutenant, was canceled after just one season due to an episode he wrote about racism. So he thought that a science fiction show would provide perfect cover for the messages of peace and hope in the future that he was trying to convey. 
We know now that, for these very reasons, Star Trek would endure as one of the most important television shows of the 20th century. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. For now, we have one Sandy Courage, who needs to present potential theme music for the show to Gene Roddenberry, and then write approximately 30 minutes or so of music for this Star Trek pilot. And for him, in the middle of his very busy musical career in Hollywood, this was just another TV gig. At least, at first. How could he have ever known in those moments that this would be one of the biggest projects he would be remembered for? Anyway, as he was accustomed to doing, Courage wrote the music for the pilot in roughly a week. And on Friday, January 22nd, 1965, as the clock struck 8 in the morning, Courage led a small musical ensemble featuring two flutes, one oboe, one hecklephone, two clarinets, two bass clarinets, one contrabass clarinet, three French horns, three trumpets, three trombones, one tuba, one soprano singer, one guitar, one organ, one harp, four percussionists, and one bass. He orchestrated and conducted his own music that day. So that means he was both the composer and orchestrator, of course, recording over 32 minutes of music for the pilot. But one minute of that music became one of the most famous TV themes of all time and is the one minute of music that Courage is most remembered for. Who could have known? That music is, of course, the main theme for Star Trek. These opening notes, iconic while listening decades later. And now a fanfare. Key change. Fanfare again. Another key change. And we're off. Our main melody, long, legato, smooth, under a driving rhythm. Jazzy chords, melodies sitting on tensions, big leaps and scale dissensions. And then it comes to a stop as the Starship Enterprise appears on our TV screens. The camera zooms in to the top of the Enterprise's main disc to a bulbous light in the center. Via an optical sphere, we wipe into what looks like a command deck of a vessel, and our pilot begins. Let's take a look at how this melody is constructed. There are three parts to this melody. The first is an introduction that gives us four notes. It's kind of a dominant preparation here. A mysterious tension for what is yet to come. A, E, G, B. Kind of an open sound without resolution. Then, Sounding on an A, the second part begins with a strong, heroic new phrase. A D major melody emerges, boldly on horns. Totally diatonic to D major. Then implying a dominant A chord again in the last two notes. And then, the melody changes keys. And normally, Key changes are around a step, a half-step apart. But no, this is a massive leap, a full major third. Up to the C-sharp, perhaps reacting to the ship that had just zipped past the camera very quickly. Now, the melody is stated again in the new key. 
this time with trumpets instead of horns, building excitement. And then another key change, up a third. Each key change signaling the dominant of the next key. And now we're off running. These two opening sections are by far the most simple of the main title music that Courage is presenting us with. And so perhaps it's no coincidence that they're also the ones that have endured the longest, as they're still heard in Star Trek movies and TV shows decades later. But more on that in a bit. Let's take a closer look. Because the melodic shapes of these two melodies are, in my opinion, very evocative of what the whole show is about. First, in the intro, we get these high-pitched, soft, and mysterious notes over visuals of a star field. They step down gracefully, like the heavenly sky raining down starlight upon us, something that humankind has been looking at since before our recorded history. But while the stars look down on us, the Enterprise, in a dazzling visual effect for the mid-1960s, blasts out into the unknown, accompanied by a martial call of the horns. Strong and pushing upwards, and then with a little dissension, but only to push up even higher. Ultimately, a key change breaks us through to new heights, and the whole melodic sequence and key change repeats. Starting this melody on the fifth, by the way, when the tonic is here, something that composer Jerry Goldsmith would also do over a decade later for the Star Trek motion pictures, means we're not starting on a heroic one. It gives us somewhere to go. It's almost terrestrial, starting below the one note, but then quickly blasts off into space. It musically catapults this idea of leaving Earth for the stars, something that was slowly becoming a reality in the 1960s, by the way. This was written four years before the moon landing in 1969. Launch. Achieve orbit. And then warp factor one. This melodic shape will prove to be the most long-lasting, the most powerful, and one of the most famous melodies to emerge from this franchise. It says so much about the spirit of the show, while musically using so little, something so simple. It speaks to the razor-sharp instincts of Sandy Courage, who at this point in his career was so prolific as an orchestrator, arranger, and composer. But when asked about it in an interview with John Burlingame years ago, he seemed to almost shrug it off as just another day at the office. Regardless, talent is talent, instinct is instinct. Now let's chat about the third section, the main melody of this theme. Melodically, it does something similar to the call to action. It takes large interval leaps and descends downward, only to take another big leap And these are long lines that move pretty slowly. Meanwhile, the rhythm underneath is booking it, moving pretty fast. Sandy Courage explains why. When I was a little kid and I used to listen to the radio, there was a song by Richard Whiting called Beyond the Blue Horizon. And it had a long tune. 
and underneath this tune, they used to have a, usually an accordion player or something like that. They're going ticka 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 you see, about triple time. I thought, well, I should have a long thing that goes out into space, and it keeps going out into space, and everything's going to be long, long, long. This piece, however, inspired by Beyond the Blue Horizon, is much more harmonically complex than the intro and fanfare that precedes it. Its melody lands on tension-filled chords, very jazzy progressions, that date this music somewhat to this specific period of the 20th century. Just to quickly explain, we've talked about major chords and minor chords. We've even talked about certain modes like Lydian. And we've even discussed augmented and diminished chords, just a tiny bit. Well, in the 20th century, Chord tensions started playing a big role in jazz and then in film scores. We have triad chords, meaning three different tones. Then another tone if you want, a sixth or a seventh, major or minor. Don't worry, there's no quiz, but just to quickly illustrate, it gets much more complicated from here. You can keep stacking thirds, like a ninth, in some cases, like minor or subdominant chords, an 11th or sharp 11th, and even a 13th. And you can invert these chords into really tight voicings, clumping them together, moving them around, instead of voicing them apart like I just did. And when we do that, we start to get an idea of some chords that were used in the Great American Songbook in the 20th century. We get an idea of jazz standards, and chords that were also used in quite a few pop songs and film scores of that era. Star Trek's main theme utilizes these sounds pretty heavily. It starts on a B-flat major sixth. But then immediately goes to a borrowed minor chord, a G-flat 13. Which means, by the way, that a major seventh and a ninth is implied in the voicing. And the melody actually sits on the ninth of this chord, so it's a bit unstable, a bit complex. It drops to the root of the chord before everything goes back to the one, the B-flat six. But then it goes bonkers on a D-flat augmented sharp 11, where it sits on the augmented raised fifth of the chord. You know what? I'm just gonna play the extended version of the theme that Courage wrote for the end credits and you'll get the idea. flat, G flat 13, B flat 6 9, D flat augmented sharp 11, C6, C flat 9, C flat 13, sharp 11, D flat 6, F7 augmented sharp 9, F7 augmented, B flat at 2, G flat 13, B flat 6 9, E flat 9 sharp 11, D9, D9 flat 5, E flat 6, A flat 9 sharp 11, B flat 6 9, G7 augmented flat 9, C minor 7, 
C minor 7 over F. B flat 6 9. Whew. You know, it's a totally different subject, almost a completely different podcast, honestly. But the 20th century, musically speaking, is a time of such divergence in music. Rhythmically, harmonically, stylistically, avant-garde and modern music, two world wars, the rise of jazz and eventually rock and roll, R&B and hip-hop, a return to folk music, a return to romantic orchestral music, electronic music. Never before had we seen such a splintering of musical and harmonic tastes. And as such, these type of chords somewhat date this piece to this period in 20th century writing. Not that these chords aren't still used, but not perhaps quite in this way or this style. Add in some bongos driving the beat, a TV music staple, and it feels very 60s. It's filled with what one of Alexander Courage's colleagues at MGM used to call shoulder chords, meaning imagine a pianist in a white tuxedo crooning and playing in a cocktail lounge, and they're playing along, and every once in a while, they dazzle with crazy chords like this and look at you over their shoulder in a smarmy way, like, aha, well, look at that cool chord. It was a joke amongst arrangers and orchestrators even then. So Courage admits that this theme is filled with what he called shoulder chords. And by the way, comparisons of this theme, or at least its opening chord progression, have been drawn with a jazz tune written by Johnny Green, who coincidentally ran the MGM music department while Courage was there. And that piece is called Out of Nowhere. If anything, these similarities are just indicative of a fashionable writing style of that time, which Courage also employed for Star Trek's main theme, consciously or not, given how fast he wrote it. Still, the main theme of Star Trek is a classic. It gives us the speed, the exoticism with the melody, a feeling of mystery, of science fiction, but also of action. What's remarkable about Alexander Courage's work here is, first of all, he wrote this theme music and presented it to Gene Roddenberry without ever seeing a frame of the show. I sat down and I came up with this theme. And uh, Was this before you had seen any film or had you? Oh yeah, I didn't see any film, no. And uh, You did not see the film before you wrote a theme? A, yeah. A, a demo theme for Star Trek? Yeah, I, as I recall, yes. Okay. So I went out to uh, the, the, the old Selznick Studios at Culver City and met Gene and uh, played the theme for him and he kind of liked it. So then we all went to lunch across the street with all the characters from the show, including Spock and the strange ladies with the, the throbbing heads and um, you know, crossing, crossing Culver Boulevard at high noon. Did, do you recall if, if Bill Hatch gave you a script? What were you working from when you wrote the theme? Well, um, um, it was, it's a, after all, it's a thing about space. But I obviously had it in my head, you know, I, I did it between two Daniel Boones or something like that at Fox. It was, you know, just another show. Did Bill ever say why he called you, why he thought you might be right for this? No, no. We were just, you know, we were dear old friends and uh, every once in a while when he could, he'd throw something my way. And this was just one other show, basically. Yeah, it was at that point. He was just told, think outer space. And Courage dreamed this up. 
Therefore, it's amazing how well-informed it is, how timeless the first half is, and how beautifully the main melody becomes the zeitgeist of 1960s science fiction on television. It defines the age and becomes one of the most famous TV themes of all time, recognizable to generations all over the world. By the way, a quick note about orchestration. For this third part, Courage wanted the melody to sound otherworldly. It wasn't enough just to have complex chords or melodic lines. So he used a combination of sounds, a soprano vocal, a flute, and an organ, so that the melody would sound unlike anything else, to give Star Trek a new signature sound. Ultimately, it didn't go down quite this way for the pilot, because Gene Roddenberry loved the soprano vocal so much that he wanted it pushed up in the final mix. So we mostly associate this theme with that soprano vocal. However, when we listen to the show, we actually hear different versions of the theme. There's a version, for example, where the theme is carried by an electric violin. There's also a version for cello. But ultimately, by season two and three, the soprano vocal won out. And that's how we mostly hear it when looking back on the series. Gene Roddenberry went on to assemble an incredible team of writers, producers, cast and crew for Star Trek. And Alexander Courage scored multiple episodes of Star Trek, including not one, but two pilots. You heard that right. There are two Star Trek pilots before the first season even gets into production. And on the next episode, we'll tell you the tale of these two pilots, discuss more of Courage's Star Trek music in depth, talk about how we as an audience hear great music in spite of the budgetary constraints of television, and how our creatives cleverly dealt with those constraints. We'll also meet the other composers of Star Trek Season 1. All four of them. That's right. Star Trek Season 1 was written by five different composers. Until then, happy listening, live long, and prosper. Thank you.